So, uh, are there any new, brand new students here today? Anybody who's never done this practice or wants to admit it? Uh, okay. It's really easy. Uh, won't be a problem. You'll be able to just catch on real quick. And um, The day is advertised as a day for cynics in recovery. Um, non-cynics are also welcome. Uh, but it's a day that I would like to uh, use to emphasize two, two basic themes. One, of course, presence, which is what the Buddha taught so beautifully uh, how to be in the moment uh, with our lives. Once there was a, a king of Kosala who came to visit the Buddha and his disciples and said, "Oh, your your disciples—they look so joyful. What? I mean, they're smiling and they're—it seems like their minds are like gazelles' minds. That was the, the phrase he used, and." He said, how, how come this is so? And the Buddha said, it's because they don't regret the past or look forward to the future that they are in the, in the moment, and that is why they, they are so joyful. So the first part of the day, we, we will really emphasize presence, and presence requires a, a kind of embodiment, reincarnation, if you will to be incarnated, to be in this body, in this fathom-long body, as the Buddha called it. Uh, Carl Jung said, if you're depressed, you're too high up in your mind. You're up in this little place that's very, very much about your drama, the survival brain, the, the brain that's focused around this individual, whereas... Here in the body, we are a common uh, species. We are connected to the human condition, not just our, our, our personal condition. So we come into the body, and the body always, always brings us into the moment. This is what is happening right now. There's breath, there's heartbeat, there's uh, sensation, there's perception. There's even thinking, which is just like the pulsing of this fathom-long body. Another organ of this body is, is pulsing it, pulsing thoughts. That's what it does. Um, and then, as we move on with the day, we will more and more emphasize wonder and awe, which is really the antidote to cynicism. And uh, the, the title of the day actually comes from a poem by Hafiz. O wondrous creatures, by what strange miracle do you so often not smile? And through this practice, we come to that release of this involvement in this exclusive attachment to this individual drama, and we open our minds to a much wider sense of who we are. The Buddha said, you know, true happiness can only be found by eliminating 
the false idea of I or self. And it's not about getting rid of this small self, this individuality, this personality, but it's about expanding your sense of identity, including the small self, but then also understanding your species self or your universal self to understand that the individual human life is first and foremost life. That's what's happening here. Life. This mysterious quality in the universe that animates matter. Secondly, what is happening here is, is, is the human condition. A part of life that has come, become conscious of itself and itself in the universe. And thirdly, and only perhaps narrowly, is this individual. So it's to expand our sense of who we are that brings a kind of release and a kind of joy and a spaciousness in the mind and in the heart that is truly liberation and happiness. So, one more thing here. This is another poem by Hafiz. Hafiz is my main man these days, aside from the Buddha, of course. Buddha sits on the right. These days, Hafiz is on the left. This is the great secret. God was full of wine last night, so full of wine, he let a great secret slip. He said, there is no one on this earth who needs a pardon from me, for there really is no such thing as sin. So you are all immediately absolved. It's, this is the main thing that I'd like you to remember today. One of the main things. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. None of it. It's really, it's so liberating to know that. And it's so deeply true. We can get into explaining why it's not your fault, but we'll just start with that. Another thing I'd like you to remember is that today will not lead you to anything. It is, has no value or purpose other than itself. We're a group of people who have gathered together to spend a day getting in touch with the mystery, getting in touch with our own confusion, looking at it, being curious about it, perhaps playing with it some. It's not about the next thing that's going to happen. It's not about preparing yourself for some enlightenment that's down the road. It's just about today. It's just about this moment right now, just being here with each other in this, uh, in this form. and coming to terms with it and see if we can be somewhat bemused by it rather than totally distraught by, its, by, by what it is we might expect from this condition. So, enough said. Um, we will begin with, with, with a sit and then Terry will lead us in, uh, 
some mindfulness-based yoga, and we'll have some time to walk and talk. So welcome. I'm really happy to be here. So sitting as comfortably as you can with your spine as straight as possible and feeling solid in your seat. some people arriving who thought it started at 9.30. Well, that's fine. We can catch them up quickly. We'll just tell them it's not their fault and (laughs) they'll just begin. Welcome. Welcome. fault and uh, welcome to our day long. Anybody brand new? Are you anybody brand new? You're pretty brand new? Okay. You want to sit as comfortably as possible? Yeah, you can sit on a cushion if you want. Are you cynics by any chance? No? Okay. Well, we'll take care of that. So, we'll begin by just uh, closing our eyes gently and locating ourselves in the universe. You feel yourself seated here in this particular place. For a few moments, you might bring your awareness to the sense of hearing, the way in which the acoustic sense brings us into a location. some more people who've arrived, so we'll just integrate them as they come in. 
welcome. Make yourself at home. Feel comfortable. It's not your fault means that essentially you wouldn't choose to torment yourself. Or also you wouldn't choose, what, what you would choose if you could choose is the ability to control your mind simply at will, be present with the breath just by choosing that. What we inherit, our karma, is this human condition and it comes with uh, a mind that is very conditioned to be self-centered, to think, to plan, to fantasize, to regret, to be judging of ourselves and the world. The Buddha kept calling it this precious human condition because we have the ability to see the nature of our own minds and to come to a new kind of freedom. But the beginning and actually the end of the whole Dharma is to forgive ourselves, to be tender, to be compassionate toward ourselves. And uh, so that, that is really, I mean, the Zen master, uh, Ryo Khan, says, you want to know where the Dharma, what the Dharma is all about, it's all about it, the heart. It's all about compassion for yourself to begin with and then for everyone. It's not easy. Not easy being us. So, Teresa, Terry. So we have time before uh, lunch break for some discussion, comment, questions of either Terry or myself or problems you're having, difficulties you're having in Dharma practice or anything. Yeah. No. No, I'm here as I'm here as a Dharma teacher, not not my in my song and dance incarnation. <laughs> I, I I will do this afternoon I'll do a little talk that'll include some of the some of the elements of my monologue, the monologue I've been doing. Oh yeah, it's it's getting it's getting requested by. Uh... Oh yes, it does have dharma in it. Yes, I guess I could recite it. Maybe. We'll see how lunch goes.
So don't be shy in asking if you're having difficulties because, you know, we're, we really are uh, one species and we're really doing this awakening thing collectively and we all are carrying the same crosses and baggage and conditioning. So, you know, it's, it's not anything that anyone should take, be, be ashamed of or uh, it's not your fault, right? Do you think it's partly because the breath feels inconsequential, that it's just kind of always there? It doesn't. It isn't very interesting to you, or is it because you can't really sort of uh, experience it, feel it? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So it's very hard to kind of, even though it's, you know, it isn't, it's gotten to the point where it isn't so controlled that, I don't know. Yeah. Part of it is that. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you ever tried to be with the breath here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, there, there's a sense that the abdomen actually... Uh, when it contracts, it spreads out. To to really get into that as much as possible, the sensing that, the sensations of breath, rather than the sense of watching it, of really sinking the awareness into the experience. And at the end of each exhale... Usually when we go off, it's in between the end of the exhale and the next inhale. To the end of each exhale, bring your attention to maybe uh, the feeling of your buttocks on the chair or the palms of your hands or the top of your head, some sensation in the body. And then the next inhale will be a surprise. It'll it'll come naturally. You'll, You'll be able to let go of that sense of trying to control it. There will be more of a sense that the breath is breathing you or breathing without you. So at the end of the exhale, go to one, uh, go to some sensation or go to some, you know, the hands or the head or the buttocks. And then, and see if you can really sink awareness into that, that experience of breath rather than the sense of kind of looking for it or watching it. So that you're all, you're, you're kind of, it's trite, but becoming one with it. Do you have any? Um, I don't want to confuse the issue, but I struggled with that a controlling of the breath for years, and you know, I finally realized that I was identified with the breath, um, and what I ended up doing was. Um, the advice of a, uh, another teacher, 
I changed the object completely. And it's sort of like adding the sitting bones or another touch point. I wasn't so identified with that, but what I actually went to was what's called the inner sound. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's, a, it's not everyone can connect with it, but it's a high-pitched sound um, that's a little bit like um, the, uh, the some people call it the sound of the nervous system, and you know you can hear it like when you uh, put your head under water. And what, ha what happened was, it wasn't a great um, object for me all the time because when there were lots of birds or lots of noise, I couldn't hear it. So it was sort of the same thing, but I wasn't identified with it. And I really understood the difference between an object where I wasn't identified and an object where I was. And then I was able to go back to the breath and not be <coughs> identified with it. It was just another phenomena, I, um, for what it's worth. In addition, um, I can sense my pulse. Mm -hmm. And there is no sense of trying to control that. Right. I've often wondered why that's never been used as an object of, you know, a, as a primary object of meditation, the pulse. Does anybody use it? And you use it too? Where do you feel it most? Um, well, actually, that's kind of how I do body scan. I follow the pulse around the body. You follow wherever the pulse is calling you? breath synchronizes with your heartbeat? Then you'd be going... <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, all right. I got you now. I'm just trying to get your rhythm here. Uh, obviously, you can see that there are... See, people find, you know, you find your own your own way and, and what works. And, and sometimes, you know, it isn't the standard, you know... In, uh, um, in general, we in in this tradition, we we try as much as possible to stay just with what is, without uh, adding, without creating anything in our mind. So we use the breath or the body or sensations, which are naturally occurring as our primary object, the kind of the anchor that, that we focus on, from which then we can view all, all sorts of things. Yeah, that helps, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I would. I think if you feel drawn to doing this this technique, this insight practice, I would stay. I would, you know, you'll you'll hear the mantra. It'll come. It probably comes on its own, right? Around. No, actually, I don't tend to invite it because I'm trying to do it. Uh huh. Uh huh. Can I incorporate it now? No, no, I wouldn't. I, I was I was thinking that it was coming uh, on its own because of years of practice. It would occasionally pop in. No, I would I would stay with with this even though it's you know it seems more difficult it 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 brings us into a kind of acceptance of what is occurring naturally uh, which is really a powerful uh shift of experience shift of the balance of experience from the sense that we're always doing something and when you do a mantra, you are you are consciously doing something, whereas in this practice we aren't we we are receiving. We really are not. We're staying away from doing as much as possible. Something I've done with this in the past because people here recently, a lot of people have taken this concentration uh, class multi week from Joe Foxdon. Uh, they did kind of a lot of concentration type things of counting and things like that with the color. If that works for you, yeah. I mean, I, I certainly don't want to say that you know there's something wrong with it because it, yeah, it's you know it's a concentration practice. If it works for you, yeah, go ahead and do it. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do will you give her permission to? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, a lot of uh, Vipassana um, practitioners do metta at the beginning of a, sem- of a session, which is it's a concentration practice. I mean, it's used as a concentration practice, an intensive practice. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and metta is using the imagination and bringing imagery and, and, and uh, phrases to mind, so... Thank you. 
Yeah, it's sometimes you, you have to like trick your mind into saying, well, I'm moving not because I want to get rid of this, although you really do want to get rid of this. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the question of controlling the breath and not controlling the breath is an interesting one to me because one of the things I like about meditation is sort of 
Right. <laughs> well, you can have whatever thought you have. I mean, but that, see, it's it, awakening to that, you know, that you are controlling or that there is some conditioning that controls, you know, and just noticing that if you, if, see, it's very tricky in there because what you want to do is, is realize that there is this controlling uh, urge or this pattern of, of wanting to control and you can as part of the noticing you can say well I want to control that I want to let go of that so you know it's sort of infinite regression but so you, if you recognize when that controlling urge arises that that has arisen too some, somehow not as your not as something you chose to do, but as something that arises out of your conditioning. So you notice that. But you aren't, you're starting to break your identity with it because you see that it too is arising out of conditioning. It's, it's, it gets very subtle, you know, the more, the more we begin to observe these things happening in our, in our mind and happening within us and without us, we start to lose the, the the identification with it starts to loosen, and I mean your personality continues to happen. You don't get rid of your personality or get a new one, all, although many of us have tried. <laughs> but you you ha- you take it less personally. You see that it is conditioning, kind of playing itself out, and it just has less uh, power to drag you into its vortex. So the controlling may be there your whole, I mean, the controlling impulse may be there your whole life. But you, if the more you begin to notice how it arises and, and how it arises independently of any conscious intention, then you, then there's something else going on there that you can sort of rest in, in the, just that awareness. You don't have to be pulled so so strongly into it. So this would be a way to get a little free from it. Yeah, but we're not telling our mind that that's what we're doing. We're <laughs> we aren't getting rid of it. No. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a. I mean, this is a practice of freedom, and and it's not freedom in the sense of driving things away. It's a freedom in the sense of. disidentification, understanding that we inherit this condition, we inherit certainly this mammalian condition, this species condition, and then due to our early upbringing and our genes and temperament and various things that we have absolutely no control of, or at least we don't remember choosing, um, all of these things uh, are, are living through us and we, we begin to disidentify with them, and that's where our freedom comes.
And in fact, we become, we become able to be more spontaneous and alively ourselves when we sort of let go of the war within us. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it just, and it just keeps unfolding. I mean, because it's very, very, it's deep. The conditioning is deep. But it's exquisite as it begins to unfold. True happiness comes from eliminating the false idea of I or self. You know, uh, I mean, half of what I've always considered I or me, my personality, is my mother. It's usually the opposite sex parent, or you know, one one of the one of the other two significant beings in your life. I mean, the psychologists told us that for have told us that for a while now, but and now the geneticists, geneticists are finding they're finding genes that select for four different temperamental types: your novelty seeking, or your re- reward dependent, or your um, uh, harm avoiding. There's there's like four, and they they found uh, genes that select for novelty seeking now. So, it's I mean, and every civilization is history has known that people are born with certain temperaments. You know, from way back in the Greeks, uh, you know, thought that you were your your personality, your temperament was determined by a mixture of four humors: blood, bile, yellow and black bile blood and phlegm and if you had a lot of phlegm you were phlegmatic and if you had a lot of blood you were sanguine you were were a warm person and you know that people and that these persist through a lifetime it's not like you're going to you know shift from being one type of person to being another and in meditation you become familiar with that on a very very sort of intimate level of how this this personality is living you rather than you kind of living, you kind of directing it. And there's a great, great freedom that comes from that. It's a, it's a, you don't take your personality so personally. Yeah, I always thought, you know, when I first started meditating, I'm going to get a personality that I can live with more easily, you know. <laughs> oh, we are, we are uh, amazing, aren't we? Anyone else before we break for lunch? Well, so good. We, we'll take a, a lunch break. It's eleven. It's twelve fifteen or so. Uh, we'll come back one uh, thirty. Usually, after lunch, there's a tendency to uh, fall asleep when we come back from lunch and start sitting. So I thought I would provide a little diversion for you to help you digest before we start sitting again by uh, reading a couple of things that uh, 
I find rather uh, pertinent to our practice and to our lives. This is a poem by William Meredith, an American poet. It's called Accidents of Birth. Spared by a car or airplane crash or cured of malignancy, people look around with new eyes at a newly praiseworthy world, blinking eyes like these. For I've been brought back again from the fine silt, the mud where our atoms lie down for long naps, and I've also been pardoned miraculously for years by the lava of chance which runs down the world's gullies. Here I am, brought back, set up, not yet happened away. But it's not this random life only throwing its sensual astonishments upside down on the bloody membrane behind my eyeballs. Not just me being here again, old kneader, looking for someone to need. But you, up from the clay yourself, as luck would have it, and inching over the same little segment of earth ball in the same little eon to meet in a room, alive in our skins, and the whole galaxy gaping out there, the sentries whining like gnats. You, to teach me to see it, to see it with you, and together to offer somebody uncomprehending, impudent thanks. my belief that uh, we are very lucky to be born in this particular time. The Tibetans, when they begin any meditation session or ritual, arouse two appreciations. One, for being born a human being in this life, because as a human being, we can see through the boundaries of self. We can understand our condition we can awaken to our condition and thus relieve the suffering of being born into a form. And also the second appreciation is to be born at a time when the Buddha's teachings are available to us so that we have the methods by which to awaken and by which to see through the boundaries of self. And I, I think that also uh, I raise my own appreciation for being born at a time when the Western scientific tradition is in full flower, and we have all these amazing tools to understand from whence this form arises and how uh, it has evolved and what we inherit from all the life that has gone before us. And this is amazing information and a brand new, unique perspective on ourselves that we've never had before in history. And... uh, It's very powerful, I think, to ignore that wealth of understanding and to not use it as a spiritual tool, as a message to help us liberate ourselves and to be free and to understand that we are all in this together. Seeing ourselves in the story of evolution is very powerful, very, very powerful. Story. It's forgiving, it's uh, hopeful, it brings us all together, not only with each other, but with every other being that's ever lived. 
we all have this mysterious quality, life. So, in that uh, regard, I want to read this little piece uh, by Mark Twain, which he wrote uh, when the there was a great debate going on uh, over evolution. And uh, the debate had centered around whether the world was made for humans or not. And Mark Twain decided that he had to make his opinion known. So it's called, Was the World Made for Man? I seem to be the only scientist and theologian still remaining to be heard from on this important matter of whether the world was made for man or not. I feel it's time for me to speak. I stand almost with those who believe the world was made for man. I believe that it's likely. According to the latest figures, it took 99,968,000 years to prepare the world for man, impatient as the Creator doubtless was to see him and admire him. But a large enterprise like this has to be conducted warily, painstakingly, and logically. It was foreseen, perhaps, that man, once he arrived, would have to have an oyster. Therefore, the first preparation was made for the oyster. Very well, you can't make an oyster out of whole cloth. You must make the oyster's ancestors first. This is not done in a day. You must make a vast variety of invertebrates to start with, trilobites, jebusites, that sort of critter. Put them to soak in a primary sea and wait and see what will happen. Some will be a disappointment, will die out and become extinct in the course of the 19 million years covered by the experiment. But all is not lost. For the Amalekites will develop gradually into Encronites and one thing and another as the mighty ages creep on and the Archaean and Cambrian periods pile their lofty crags in the primordial seas and at last, the first stage in the preparation of the world for man stands complete, the oyster is done. Now, an oyster has hardly any more reasoning power than a scientist has. So it reasonably, it is reasonably certain that this oyster jumped to the conclusion that the 19 million years was a preparation for him. But that would be just like an oyster, which is the most conceited animal there is except for man. Anyway, this oyster could not know at that early date that he was only an incident in a scheme and there was more to the scheme yet. The oyster being achieved, the next thing to be arranged for in the preparation of the world for man was fish and coal to fry it with. So the old cerulean seas were opened up to breed the fish in, and one does not build, build coal beds in a brief time. No, it took 20 million years. In the first place, a coal bed is a slow, troublesome, tiresome thing to construct. You have to grow prodigious forests of tree ferns and reeds, calamites, such things in a marsh, marshy region, then you have to sink them out of sight, let them rot, then you have to turn the streams on them, bury them under several feet of sediment. Then the sediment must have time to harden, turn to rock. Next you grow another forest on top, sink it, put on another layer of sediment, harden it, more forest, more rock, layer upon layer, three miles deep. Indeed, a sickeningly slow job to build a coal field and do it right. So the millions of years drag on. Meantime, well, we won't go through that part of it. We'll, we'll skip. <laughs> the, we'll skip to the Paleozoic. 
It was at the, after the Paleozoic time limit was reached, it was necessary to begin the next stage in the preparation of the world for man by opening up the Mesozoic age and instituting some reptiles. For man would need reptiles not to eat, but to develop himself from. This being the most important detail of the scheme, a spacious liberality of time was set apart for it 30 million years, and what wonders followed. Those stupendous Saurians that used to prowl about the steamy world in those remote ages with their snaky heads reared 40 feet in the air and 60 feet of body, tail racing and thrashing behind. It took 30 million years and 20 million reptiles to get one that would stick long enough to develop into something else and let the scheme proceed. The Paradactyl. It burst on the world in all its impressive grandeur. And it may be that the Paradactyl thought the 30 million years had been intended as a preparation for himself, for there was nothing too foolish for a Paradactyl to imagine. But he was in error. The preparation was for man. From this time onward, for nearly another 30 million years, the preparation moved briskly. From the Paradactyl was developed the bird, the bird the kangaroo, from the kangaroo the other marsupials, from these, the mastodon, the giant sloth, the Irish elk, and all that crowd that you make useful fossils out of. Then came the great ice sheet. They all retreated before it, crossed over the bridge at Bering Strait, wandered around over Europe and Asia, and died, all except a few to carry on the preparation with. Six glacial periods with two million years between chased these poor orphans up and down and about the earth from weather to weather, from tropic swelter at the poles to arctic frost at the equator, back again, to and fro, they never knowing what kind of weather was going to turn up next. And if they ever settled down anywhere, the whole continent suddenly sank under them without the least notice. And they had to trade places with the fishes and scramble off to where the seas had been, scarcely a dry rag on them. And when there was nothing else doing, a volcano would let go and fire them out from wherever they had located. They led this unsettled, irritating life for 25 million years, always wondering what it was all for never suspecting, of course, that it was preparation for man <laughs> and had to be done just so or it wouldn't be any proper and harmonious place for him when he arrived. Then at last came the monkey and anybody could see man wasn't far off now. And in truth, that was so. The monkey went on developing for close upon five million years and then turned into all appearances a man. Such is the history of it. Man has been here 32,000 years. That it took a hundred million years to prepare the world for him is proof that that's what it was all done for, I suppose. I don't know. If the Eiffel Tower were now representing the world's age, the skin of paint on the pinnacle top at its summit would represent man's share of that age, and anybody would perceive that the skin of paint was what the whole tower was built for. <laughs> I reckon they would. I don't know. Mark Twain. Yes, I think our, our our arrogance as a species is mirrored as in our arrogance as a individual, you know, and uh, we don't see ourselves as bubbling as a, as a as a bubble, as a moment, as a moment in these great processes of biological and cosmic evolution. That you know, it's. Uh, if we if we see with our new eyes of science, we really can begin to see the truth of what the Buddha taught of uh, impermanence and no self, anatta, and 
and have a, a lighter attitude towards this appearance that uh, we are, this temporary appearance that we are. Now, of course, you know, the, the biologists say that we, we have not... The, the Victorians were shocked to hear that, you know, we might have been descended from great apes. It was a great statement by some Victorian lady who said, I certainly hope that Darwin is not correct, but if he, if he is, let's hope nobody hears about it. <laughs> uh, but now our... Our uh, molecular biologists tell us that we're related to the bacteria. That that's, you know, that it is uh, the bacteria uh, were the beginning and actually combined and various microorganisms uh, in combination were what started the lineage of plants and animals and and we're all we're all connected. Um, Of course, the Buddha's the, the the great aspect of the Buddha's teaching is that he said that we need to experience ourselves in a different way. It has to be deeper than a intellectual understanding, because the whole way that we begin to disidentify and find freedom from what we inherit from all of life is by seeing with our own mind the habits of mind, the habits of the ordinary uh, ego, and by seeing them, we begin to, to gain freedom from them. And only by seeing them within ourselves do we, we gain that freedom. We can't just know about it and because they're too powerful, they're too strong. So, with that said, and uh, that premise, let's uh, let's meditate. I have a bottle of water. I need a towel. Is what I need. <laughs> no, I'll dry off here in a minute. Is that is that all right? I lo- I would love to get some circulation in here. Yeah, that'll do it. Great. <laughs> no, it's noisy, it's hot, it's noisy, it's something. Is that okay? Closing the eyes and once again coming back to this basic aliveness, vitality and strength in the body.
In this meditation, let's give some special emphasis to the momentariness of experience. One of the most powerful Dharma doors, entries into liberation, is to see that everything is in flux. All things are continually in motion. The Tao is a flow. You might notice that you cannot hold on or stop any moment of experience. There's now, and then there's now, now. See if you can enter that flow by resting in awareness itself. Becoming one with the awareness itself. The phenomena appear and disappear, appear and disappear. You notice and let go, receive and release. Awareness steady, relaxed, not getting involved, simply present. Phenomena appear and disappear all on their own. Very little effort is needed.
I'd like to lead you now into a bit of a guided reflection meditation that will hopefully awaken some awe. As Rumi says, awe is the salve that will heal our eyes. So letting your eyes closed and just feeling your whole body, feeling this aliveness here. Sometimes when I get lost in the self-drama and feel oppressed by it, I try to remember that in this form at least, it took 15 billion years to make me. So I'm not perfect yet. There's time. Besides, what did I expect? As you sit here at this moment and are simply aware of your aliveness, you might acknowledge there are all sorts of very complicated processes going on to keep you alive and you don't have to lift a finger. Metabolism. The process of extraction of nutrients from stored energy transferred into your life energy. heartbeat, circulating your blood and oxygen to every cell of your body. If your entire circulatory system were stretched end to end, it would go around the earth twice. And your heart is pumping blood through that system every minute to every corner of it.
at this moment inside this body that you feel there are billions of other living beings essential to your life breaking down nutrients doing all sorts of jobs more beings alive inside of you now than all the humans that have ever lived on the earth Bacteria, single-celled beings, they have little civilizations in there, cultures. One molecular biologist says, our conception of the individual is purely arbitrary. Each of us is a walking ecosystem. hundred trillion cells in your body all working together neuroscientists estimate that your brain processes 11 million bits of information per second. You feel your body breath, heartbeat, senses open, hearing, feeling. Interpreting the stimulus of the world. Stimulus from within and without. Life living through you. an amazing display of complexity
arising out of untold numbers of causes and conditions, coincidences, accidents, nature, life adapting to nature, growing legs, growing brains. Who could have dreamed this up? And then there is this mystery of consciousness. The scientists have no idea what it is. They can't find out where it's located. This mystery. That which knows. Where is it? Whose is it? Without any effort at all, consciousness is there. Knowing the world, inner and outer, knowing even of itself. Let yourself sit a while with the experience body, breath, senses, awareness. Without knowing, without trying to know anything, or figure anything out, or do anything.
feeling this living condition and this human condition and then there's this personality in there this adaptation of life revolving around memory that weaves a story about this particular being perfectly natural as well whether you are aware of it or not, whether you are present or not, it keeps living through you. Life keeps living through you. couple more little wonder and awe-inducing stories, facts. One is about these hundred trillion cells in your body. Hundred trillion cells inside of each cell. Each cell, by the way, is about a millionth of a pinhead big. Inside of each cell is a drop of seawater, a few molecules, but seawater. Floating inside of that drop of seawater 
is a two-yard long strand of DNA. It's so thin that it's wound millions of times around itself. It's only a couple molecules thin, uh, wide. So, and on each of those strand, two-yard long strands of DNA is all of the information necessary to build and maintain your body and nervous system and brain and millions of, well, hundreds of volumes of information on those. Two yards of DNA in each of a hundred trillion cells. If your DNA was stretched out end to end, it would go around the earth five million times. Do the math. Two yards, a hundred million cells, hundred trillion cells, sorry. Something is going on here. What, you know, I mean, the complexity of it and the, you know, there's so much backup there to keep this, this life process going. Uh, Richard Dawkins, a famous evolutionary scientist, says it talks about the selfish gene. But what is it selfish for? If life hasn't been built in with this determination to live, so you could think of the selfishness as being for the sake of life itself. To what end? To what purpose? It's just, but it's just completely, I don't know, it fills me with awe. It took 15 billion years to make you. How could you be depressed? 15 billion years to make you. There's an, okay, so the second story is uh, a suggestion by E.O. Wilson that we take a walk from the center of the earth uh, to the surface of the earth. Now, we've, the scientists have found other planets out there, I think about 90 of them now, evidence of that there are other planets around other suns in the galaxy, and God knows, you know, there's 100 billion galaxies. But so far, none of those planets seem to be situated in a, a place where life might have evolved because it's, they're too close to their sun or they, they're in some part of the galaxy that gets too many gamma rays or, you know, they're just... This seems like to be the ideal place and, as far as we know, the only place where life exists in the entire universe. Okay, so you start at the beginning at the center of the earth and you start your walk and for about a week you walk through nothing but molten hot lava maybe a week and a half pretty soon you start going through mountains of rock nothing moving of course except you know flowing matter and then about a month into your walk you start to notice in the in the water tables way down there's some beings that seem to be self-propelled and you notice a few more and a few more and then for about 15 it suddenly you burst onto the surface of the earth and there are literally millions of different species and forms of life these self-propelling uh, beings millions of them everywhere 
on, in every crevice, in every possible niche, nook, cranny. And then 15 minutes later, there are just a few mites on some dust motes and maybe an airplane goes over with some humans in it. And then nothing. And as far as we know in the entire universe, it's just this little space right here where we are that this phenomena exists. And it exists in amazing profusion. I, it's, uh, that's, that walk, uh, I sometimes, uh, it, 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 I recall it and I, I think about it as I, as I walk outside or I walk in, in the world and, and, and uh, it always just triggers me back to this, yes, this is very interesting and rare, unusual, something going on here and I'm part of it, I've been evolved out of it and where it's going I don't know but it's it's quite fascinating seems like there's something some intelligence behind it all something that wants something to happen <laughs> anyway those are two more little stories so we have some time uh, before we do a final sit. Um, any questions or comments or discussion? That, or problems? Do you feel much awe in your life? Do you feel... How, do you have to... I, I, it comes sometimes, it comes unbidden to me, but often I have, if I sit and bring my attention to the phenomena of life happening here in this being, experiencing it and feeling it happening without my intention, feeling that sort of life living through me, feeling, there does come a sense of wonder and a, a sense of sufficiency and not needing so much and not being so afraid and not being so concerned about uh, what it is I have to do and to get. As Joanna Macy says, we're going to have to want different things. We're going to have to find a new definition of what makes us happy if we're going to perhaps save this experiment here on earth and, and let it continue because we are definitely uh, wrecking havoc with it. And it has to do with perhaps coming to a new sense of joy and fulfillment in what is rather than being locked in this, in this aggressive, needy, Ego. And we're doing it together. That's the thing. We're all, you know, we're all doing the same thing. And we all have the same hindrances that arise and the same 
I mean, you know, there's a little variation here and there, but basically we're dealing with this, we're all at the same moment of consciousness, the same moment of the evolution of, of consciousness and mind and brain. So our waking up is the waking up of the species, the waking up of, of, of humanity. It's not ours. And we're standing on the shoulders, of course, of giants. But if you look at, if you look at it that way, I mean, look at the fact that, uh, was it till what, 50,000 years ago, first evidence of humans having elaborate burial rituals and making jewelry and masks and a kind of full-on self-consciousness had awakened only about 50,000 years ago, which in biological time is nothing. Zip. 12,000 years ago, we start living in cities and agriculture. That's just 12,000 years ago. The Buddha, Lao Tzu, Socrates, 2,500 years ago. It's nothing. Just beginning to really understand the mind, understand who we are in this process of evolution, in this uh, understanding ourselves in deep time. Einstein, Freud, Darwin, our contemporaries, basically, this is a brand new ball game that we're involved here, this sort of awakening, watching ourselves, being aware of our, our own consciousness, being aware of our personality. No wonder we're not very good at it. <laughs> but to see it that way is forgiving and also hopeful. I mean, and it's, and it's exciting then. It's exciting to think that, you know, we're part of this. Any thoughts? It, it kind of makes sense. I think what you're saying is by developing this awareness and developing the Dharma and beginning to disengage from your own ego, your aggressive, 
is that kind of removing yourself from the fray in some way? No, I don't, I, no. I mean, there are ways of thinking about it. I mean, and this might seem glib and like, you know, oh yeah, no, you're, you're doing, uh, it, it, it isn't removing yourself from the fray. In some way, there, there's, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, you know, in order to make peace, you have to be peace. The less aggression in the world, the less neediness, the more open and free you are, the less harm you're going to cause to yourself, suffering to yourself and to others. You're going to be happy with less, which God knows we need more people happy with less. Uh, There's just so many different ways in which it works to help humanity perhaps get back into harmony, back into some kind of balance, into some kind of wisdom about how it's living so I don't. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if I could add anything to it, but it's, yeah, that's kind of that's normalized what I was thinking about. Also, for most people, unless you go off to a monastery, it, your your removal of yourself is not that extreme. You you pretty much you stay in the world, and and it's just that you. Your priorities begin to shift, and you—you know—the more you find that you that this really serves you, and you find more freedom in it and more peace in it, um, the more you increase your your work, you know, your practice, and then it just it flows out from there. Did you want to add? The Buddha said there's one wholesome desire. And that these desires come from a place of wisdom. Um, and those are the kinds of desires that we want to be able, that we want to be cultivating. Um, so desire in itself is not a problem. Even bad desires aren't a problem if, if you're not attached to them. You know, they just arise. But this desire, these wholesome desires, are... Desires, you know, those preferences. 
are coming from a wisdom place. And those desires are, are worth satisfying. The desire to be free, the desire to be loving, the desire to be peaceful, the desire to... The desire to practice, the desire to come to a day But the, the desire, I think that, you know, it, you put out effort to satisfy them, but there's also, in, in all of Dharma, there is some sense of Surrender. There is some sense of surrender to the, the outcome. You don't know what the outcome is going to be. So the the intention is made and the the effort is put in, but there you're going to have moments when you know you're full of rage or envy or greed or. Those are strong habits. Then you forgive yourself, you make the intention again, you make the effort. So that, in that sense, the desire is to be free of desires that are leading you to, into suffering, into difficulty. Anyway, it's just, I think it's just a language issue. Mm-hmm. Or in a cave, or, or wherever it is that develops that, really develops that to its fullest. Mm-hmm. As we, we run through all the, the exercises that you can do to truly practice. Mm-hmm. And, and what we're doing is we're trying to achieve something without removing ourselves from the world. And there's this tension that exists that I think you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It, it certainly is true for me. And one of the things that I think about is a, a book that influenced me about. 30 years ago, I read uh, Teilhard de Chardin on the future of man, or was it the phenomenon of man? Yeah, yeah. And uh, his premise was that we are all evolving, and, and I consider the rise of Buddhism in the West and the lay world to be part of an evolution that, that, is, that it's important that we not all remove ourselves from the world. Uh-huh. <laughs> that, that somehow the interaction between people who are beginning to develop different values is really very important. Mm-hmm. And so that, when I get very confused, that's what I think about. That, okay, so I drive a really nice car and I live in Palo Alto and should I give those away and do something like that? Or should I influence people uh-huh. around? Uh-huh. Interesting and question, yeah. Values. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's very, very well spoken. I think that also that the idea of being lay Buddhists or doing this practice in the world requires that we forgive ourselves a lot because even in the Buddhist time, if you think about it, even in the Buddhist time, an agrarian society probably moving at a tenth the speed of ours, 
where roles, people's roles were very well defined, you know, who you were, caste system, the whole works. And still, he said, we got to go out to the forest and remove ourselves in order to really find freedom, to really get enlightened. So, you know, when you consider the society that we live in, you can imagine, you know, I mean, it, it's it's not easy. That's why I, th- I think that that we really sh- we really need to acknowledge that because otherwise we get into this war with ourselves and it's if we, if we find the practice so frustrating if you think that you're going to somehow be mindful all the time out there in this crazy you know speedy world that that you're going to beat yourself up you're going to give it up fast either give up the practice as you know out of frustration or uh You'll be a constant war with yourself. I think that the for, that's really important. And then the forgiveness, constantly forgiving yourself, doesn't mean that you don't make the effort or make the intention to be present. And you know, but to remember, you know, this is a brand new. This is a brand new game. I'm, I have mantras. One mantra is, I'm perfectly human, or I'm only human, one of the two. That, that one's, it was a, it's a good one. Um, it's only natural, or it's perfectly natural. Either way they work. It's per- perfectly natural. I'm only human or I'm perfectly human and it's only natural. <laughs> Take your pick. As somebody said, uh, hindrances aren't in your way. They are the way. <laughs> that they really show you where, you, yeah, absolutely, where, where, you're, where you have work to do. But it's such an interesting uh, process. Really, the only game in town. As far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so, any more? Any anybody else? Yeah. Sure. Those are the best kind. Is it a kind of dizziness? Or it's nausea in the stomach? Yeah, I'm kind of very queasy and like I have to, I have to get 
Right. I was just going to say, yeah, no, no, I can't. <laughs> yeah. They, but first of all, they're all faking it. That's number one. Lots of people get various reactions when they, when. How, how long have you been sitting meditating? I don't do it that much. Uh huh. What happens when you open your eyes? Uh huh. I suggest that you meditate with your eyes open. It's not necessary to close your eyes. I once asked a Tibetan Lama who I was studying with, why, why do you keep your eyes open? He said, why do you close yours? <laughs> um, you, can, you can keep your eyes open and, and somewhat unfocused and keep them uh, you know, a few yards ahead of you or about three-quarters of the way up the up the ceiling or the horizon. Just keep them unfocused, letting light come in. The visual field is, you know, things are changing in the visual field. Notice when you get caught by something, come back. Come back to the breath, come back into the body. So if that, you know, allows you to stay without that queasiness, that's then... No, no. You let your let yourself meditate with your eyes open. Yeah. Let that be. Let that be your common practice. And then maybe you can. You know, maybe later on you'll try and you close your eyes and see if it comes back. But it's certainly not a not a problem. A lot of people do practice with their eyes open. You have. A, do you have anything? Okay. Yeah. Oh, the daily grind about grinding his teeth, yeah. He says in med- he was meditating with the dog and his mouth, and he began to feel extreme nausea. And he thought he was going to throw up, but he just sat with it. Mm-hmm. And very strong emotions came up. Mm-hmm. It's very funny, funny article. Yes, Probably our, our the managing editor probably has a, a, a uh, address for him. So if you send the note in, he'll probably get get in touch with you. So that that's another thing that you can do, and and is to as you start to feel the nausea, let yourself be curious and see if there's tension somewhere. Maybe there is tension in your jaw. Maybe there's some kind of fear. Where is that located? You know, make it into kind of a investigation.
and maybe access to psychological material? Do you think in those terms? I, I, I don't think in those terms when I'm meditating. I read about that stuff a lot. Uh, I, I'm very interested in neuroscience and how the brain works, which I think is fascinating subject and it, and very useful for meditators. I mean, it if you get some sense of the complexity of the working of the brain and how I mean, the the science the neuroscientists are totally puzzled. They they say there's no director up there. They can't find that there's all these different parts of the brain that process different different tiny little elements of our experience like loud sounds and quiet sounds are processed in different parts of the brain. When you see somebody walking towards you, if they look directly at you, certain cells light up. If they don't look directly at you, other cells light up. I mean, and all of this is assembled in this enormously complex process of interpretation and decision-making before you have any idea, you know, it, most, of our, most of our interpretation of the world and uh, reaction to the world is decided before we're even conscious of the process. And, and that's even conscious on a, on a kind of low level of consciousness, let alone supra-conscious, you know, as we're aware of the whole process. Um, Anyway, it, I find it very interesting. But so what? So I don't really. It's not when I'm meditating. When you're meditating, you really want to stay as much as possible in experience. You can use some of that that information to reflect a little bit as you're sitting. But you don't want to get too thinky in your sitting, or you lose the power of uh, that that experience, the experiential knowing which is really the transformative knowing. I'm thinking of an awareness that if I'm anxious, I'm, you know, in a certain level, and if I calm and settle, I'm coming down, and then I'm more in touch with psychological stuff that I might not normally go to, the more I can settle and be present, really. Mm -hmm. But I see it also as... Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. If you if you feel that, yeah, yeah, that's that's an experience that you feel. Be careful that you aren't going looking for, you know, that psychological material so that you can solve it and root it out. You know, let it. If it arises, fine. You know, be as much as possible letting what naturally arises arise is is the way you want to approach your experience in meditation. I find what, what is very useful to me is when I feel anxiety or some, you know, what is known as the hindrances, desire, aversion, anxiety, whatever, to feel it and, and also sometimes to reflect that this is this is a, a perfectly natural, perfectly human feeling 
and that it probably is there in some way to take care of me. And so there's a kind of honoring and a bowing to it. So it doesn't, so it's not like, you know, I want to get rid of this, this piece of my life and just have a nice, perfect, unanxious, happy, free being here. Because that's probably not what you're going to get. I mean, you aren't going to get it. I'll, I'll guarantee it. If you get that, <laughs> you can come and I'll give you a million dollars. No, it's to get, it's to not to be at war with ourselves, but to recognize that it is generic, that it's universal, that it's so it's not I, me, mine. The the recognition of it is as as a human as part of the human condition. So you disidentify with it because it's not you're not owning it so much, but you don't hate it and you don't fight it. You're not at war with it in yourself. And it lives through you and it moves and it changes. And you don't have to act on it, but you're not repressing it and you're not fighting it. So that's, that's where it's perfectly natural comes in or it's perfectly human. So you open to it, allow it to be there, allow it to move through. Going once. Okay, let's close with a little loving kindness, a little spacious, forgiving, forgiving for all of us. Bringing attention to the center of the chest and the, just below the sternum, feel that right there in the middle. Might feel a little pressure, a little heat, maybe. The heart chakra. And sense that the breath is coming in and going out right through the middle of the chest. With every in-breath, you fill your body with a sense of lightness, and softness, caring, open-heartedness. And kind of wrapping yourself in this This feeling, filling yourself with it, wrapping yourself in it. With great love and regard for who you are, your basic dignity, as a human being, your basic goodness, your desire to awaken, 
truly honoring yourself. All your complexity and uniqueness and universality. And filling yourself with the traditional wishes of loving kindness. May I be safe. May I find wisdom and peace. May I live with ease and well-being. As you let your heart open to yourself, as you fill yourself with this tender regard and loving kindness, let yourself extend it to fill this room and include everyone in this room who is just like you. Wants the same things. May we all be safe. May we all find wisdom and peace. May we all live with ease and well-being. Letting our hearts open to embrace it all. Embrace the unfolding of all the living beings, warts and all. All of it perfect in its imperfection, beyond our understanding 
beyond our control. Embracing everything that lives May all beings be safe. May all find wisdom, peace. and well-being. Let me close with a poem by Hafiz. Usually, I, I try on uh, day-longs and retreats, longer retreats especially, but usually try to do a death and dying reflection and meditation. The Buddha said that uh, of all of the meditations that he taught, that was the supreme one, the meditation on death. But we didn't, we didn't get to it. But it, you can find it in my book, Buddha's Nature, if you want. My reflection on it, there's several, there's numbers of different uh, reflections on it. Anyway, this is a poem by Hafiz called Deepening the Wonder. And it's got death in it. Death is a favor to us, but our scales have lost their balance. The impermanence of the body 
should bring us great clarity. Deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in the tavern tonight, Hafiz would call for drinks, and as the master poured, I would be reminded that all I know of life and myself is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. If I were in the tavern tonight, I would buy freely for everyone in this world because our marriage with the cruel beauty of time and space cannot endure very long. Death is a favor to us, but our minds have lost their balance. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. So thank you for being here today. It was a joy to be here in your new meditation center. I'm thrilled for you. And uh, may you prosper and uh, grow in wisdom here. And... uh, I'm sure I'll come back one of these days. In fact, I'm planning to come back in the spring, at least, next spring, uh, to do a benefit performance here. Song and dance. No, not no dance, actually. So, till then, thank you, thank you. Thank you for helping and setting this up.